You're tuning in to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is James Caspian, a British registered psychotherapist who spent 10 years working in a gender clinic with patients who were transitioning or thinking of doing so. Trustee of the Beaumont Trust for 17 years, James was refused permission by Baspa University to research gender detransition, having first been granted permission to research reverse gender reassignment surgery. Now James has taken his case against Baspa University to the European Court of Human Rights. I'm pleased to welcome James Caspian to Savage Minds. Much of the world, especially in Great Britain, knows about your story. And I wanted to know if you could, for our listeners outside of the UK especially, if you could explain who you are and what you've been up against in your legal battle against not only Bath Spa University, Mm -hmm. but -hmm. against the larger social vetoes against free speech that fall even outside of the academy. Yes. Well, I'm a psychotherapist, and for 10 years, I worked within the context of uh, medical gender transition. I counseled patients referred to me by a doctor who prescribed hormones and uh, referred for surgery, people who were thinking about or were going to or were in the process of having a medical gender transition. I did that between 2007 and 2017. And so I saw hundreds of people over thousands of hours over 10 years. Before that, uh, I'd been a trustee of the Beaumont Trust for 17 years. That's a charity which supports and educates about um, what now comes under the umbrella transgender. Uh, Back in the day when the Beaumont Trust was begun, it was for cross-dressers, transsexuals, and and I suppose transgendered people, people who were somewhere in the middle of all that, different terminology. So I'd also in 2004, completed a piece of research in China into uh, people who transitioned. That was China, Hong Kong and Taiwan. It was a piece of research presented at the first Asian conference of sexualities in 2005, I think it was, uh, 2005. So I'd been uh, in this field for a long time in varying capacities. And around about the beginning of the second decade of the 21st century, we began to see quite a marked change in the kinds of people who were coming to ask for medical treatment for gender transition. Typically, and research what limited research there was backed this up, Uh, the average person coming to a clinic to request treatment would have been a natal male in his early 40s. Um, I say that was a typical patient, I'm not saying that was all the patients, but that would have been the average. And what we began to see was uh, a reduction in the age of patients attending and a big increase in natal females attending and particularly um, younger women who had noticeably more complex mental health histories uh, and and also an indication that they were discovering a lot of things about trans on the internet whereas before they hadn't thought about it very much if at all 
So we knew something was going on. At the same time, there was also uh, a, a new bunch of people presenting, which were people with differing gender identities. At the time, that would have been things like um, genderqueer, which I think has been superseded by the word non-binary, um, amongst others. And these people were not planning to transition, but they wanted sort of bits and pieces of surgeries, maybe, you know, women that wanted their breasts removed, but had no intention of transitioning and were part, more part of a, a wider kind of what I've come to see as a, a sort of queer theory um, band of uh, a, a kind of an intellectual approach, really. Some of these people who were coming, uh, I came to see them um, as more part of what was a kind of societal intellectual movement to subvert gender norms. Um, and, 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 and they tended to come from more of an academic background and um, might want breast removal, but had no intention of transitioning, for instance. Um, and then some of those people, it was noted, uh, they, there was the beginnings of taking doctors to court, um, suing doctors for referring or giving them treatment, saying, that actually I, you shouldn't have let me do that because I have mental health problems. So all of these things are in the mix around about the beginning of this first decade, second decade of the 21st century. And then on the back of that, I was just having a drink with a surgeon who does a lot of gender reassignment surgery, uh, Dr. Djordjevic from Belgrade, Serbia. People travel from all over the world to Dr. Georgievich for gender reassignment treatment, both male to female and female to male. He's actually a brilliant paediatric urologist, which is very necessary when doing that kind of genital surgery because there's a lot of urological repositioning that has to be done. So he said he had recently had requests for several so-called reverse operations. And he was very surprised. He'd never encountered anything like this before. He'd been in the field quite a number of years and he was worried about it. Um, this would have been nasal males who'd had surgery to transition to females. In other words, um, removal of testes and penis and creation of a neo-vagina. And they're coming to him and saying they wanted phalloplasties. That is the creation of prosthetic penis. He was calling it reverse surgery, but of course, you can't actually reverse that surgery at all. It's just a cosmetic re, a, a replacement for appearance. So he said, this has never been researched. It needs to be. And we discussed it and I decided to research it. So in order to do that, I enrolled at Bath Spa University's MA in counseling and psychotherapy, paid my own fees uh, because it was um, it was an MA which said that the bulk of the work would be a piece of research of your choice. It was also possible to do it um, part-time because I was working full-time as a psychotherapist. It was possible to do it part-time uh, on a computer without having to be in Bath. So uh, this seemed ideal because I could enroll on this and say, I chose my piece of research to be into people that reversed. Um, at that point, it was, who had reverse so-called surgery. So I did. And 
I enrolled in 2015. I spent 2015 and large part of 2016 doing some preliminary, preliminary work on research methodology. And I chose my methodology. It was IPA, Interpretative Phenomenological Analysis. It's quite a mouthful. What it means is that you interview small numbers of people in great depth, remembering, of course, that the MA had a, a psychotherapeutic slant. So um, I, I would have been taking that uh, quality of, of listening and um, talking to people into that. So it's essentially planning to have people tell their stories, to begin the research into this unresearched area uh, in order that colleagues and other people would then carry on and do further pieces of research, which is what happens with research. It then spawns more research. That was the plan. Dr. Georgievich said that because he was hosting the European Professional Association of Transgender Health Conference in Belgrade in, I think it was going to be spring 2017, that I could complete this research in time to take the findings to this conference and thereby be able to share with colleagues who work in the gender transition field what I had found and to begin a discussion that, as far as I could see, greatly needed to be had. That wasn't to be because, as you know, Bath Spa University eventually prevented me from completing that research. So um, having enrolled at Bath Spa and done these preliminary modules, I discovered that there were um, other groups of what we now call detransitioners that wouldn't have been included in my first proposal. My first proposal was people who'd reversed surgery. So this would have been that cohort that Dr. Georgievich was seeing of natal males who went to female who went back to male. However, um, a group of young women contacted me and said, we know about your research, but we know that we don't qualify because we don't have reverse surgery. We, our surgery is double mastectomy, breast removal. And then when we've detransitioned, we don't have implants. That would be the reverse surgery. So we don't qualify for your research. And the implication being we'd like to. So I heard that. I went back to the university and I said, I want to just, you know, slightly change my research proposal so that I can include this group of young women who I also could see from my preliminary research on the Internet, which I was doing pretty much every night for about 18 months and seeing more and more and more of these people more young women particularly but some men as well or a much smaller number saying that they felt they had been drawn into something what they meant by something i i think really was a sort of transgender movement if you like um and that they had thought it would solve all their considerable problems because they as the patients we'd seen more patients coming for treatment in london that uh they had complex mental health backgrounds, often histories of abuse, sexual abuse, even rape, self-harm, um, very unstable uh, emotional states. They, they tended to be young and they thought that transitioning would solve everything. It would be a, sort of like a whole new life. And for these people, these detransitioners, it was not. In fact, they felt it added to their problems. Uh, when I discovered in 2016 a booklet called Blood and Visions, which is published by an American feminist publisher called the Green Woman Press, 
uh, which you can get online. If you look, it's about $12 and they post it to you. I was sent this booklet. It was the first written account by detransitioners in, in published form off the internet about um, how they felt. And I was absolutely um, disturbed and worried by what I read because they were saying things like um, they felt it was their self-hatred of themselves as women that drove their desire to transition. They thought they could get away from being female. They'd all had very negative experiences of being female bodied in their world. Very negative, very difficult experiences. Um, and they thought it would solve everything and it didn't. When they detransitioned, they adopted a view that it was, you know, as people now say, internalized misogyny. That's not to say that everybody who transitions is coming from that place, by the way. Um, one doctor <laughs> I knew said he once made a long list of different reasons why people approach doctors to ask for treatment for gender transition. A long list of different reasons. In other words, this is a very, very complex area, which has been reduced to a very simplistic, polarized kind of um, uh, debate. It's not even a debate, is it? There is no debate. It's a it's a polarized conflict, which does not fit the complexity and the depth of this area. So uh, I wanted to highlight some of this. I wanted to people to be able to tell their stories. And Bath Spa Ethics Committee passed my first proposal into doing, uh, it was entitled, an examination of the experiences of people who undergo reverse gender reassignment surgery. The Ethics Committee said that uh, the proposal was good, that my um, uh, plans to protect the data and the participants and so on was good, and I could go ahead. So I did, and that's when I discovered there were these other groups. So I went back to the university and said, I need to just tweak this, as well as the proposal that I've said, I want to include people who've detransitioned, but without necessarily reversing their surgery. So in terms of the proposal, it wasn't a huge, wasn't a huge difference. And the university said, oh, you're going to have to go back to the ethics committee with that. So I did. And the ethics committee said, no, you can't do it. Now, I was absolutely stunned. I was confronted with a document that said, and this is virtually verbatim, um, to undertake research into inverted commas, politically incorrect material uh, could incur criticism of the research. Criticism of the research would be criticism of the university. And furthermore, it is better not to upset people. They then went on to um, question in some ways the methodology and the safety, implying that, um, you know, I, some, somehow or other that uh, the whole thing wasn't safe. It wasn't OK. It wasn't safe for me or the university or whatever, which I think was really a whole lot of flannel. The real reason was there stated at the beginning. <clears throat> so uh, a friend who was a lawyer saw that and she said, well, I think that's uh, illegal. I think we should take legal advice. So I did. And I was told that uh, I had a case, that it was an infringement of my human rights. It came outside of the remit of an academic decision because a decision about the reputation of the university is not an academic decision. 
because I don't know whether you know, but you can't um, challenge an academic decision in court. But it wasn't an academic decision. So that's when the case started, which was now around about four years ago in early 2017. What was your initial reaction to this decision by the university? Absolute shock. Couldn't believe it. Um, speechless. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading about your case and we yeah. spoke at the time as well. And I, yeah. I was horrified for you because I first wondered where the adults were in the room when this was decided. Like, did no one point out violation of basic human rights, the illiberal decision that was being undertaken? And the blight, oh, the blight as well that it could have posed to your career, you know? Well, I, I actually didn't care about my, my career. I'm semi-retired now, but uh, um, I care about the truth. And I've learned a lot about organizations. I've also been um, a member of the board of the uh, British Regulator for Psychotherapy. I've learned a lot about the internal workings of organizations and how people uh, care so much about their position and reputation and are prepared to sacrifice the truth for that almost at any cost in some cases. Um, I, I've, I've come to the conclusion that it's a, a marvel that any organizations can function reasonably well at all, given that human tendency. Well, certainly, even outside of your case, uh, when I was in academia for many years, I saw how that same kind of pleading to the students the, the conversion of students into clients, this fear of upsetting the client body was taking hold. And this happened very in various countries at different times. But I saw this when I was at Goldsmiths in 2013. I saw this earlier in the US and in Canada. So I wasn't surprised yes. by the decision, but I was horrified by it, you know. Yes, and of course, I didn't know anything about academia because it was a long time since I'd done my first degree, um, which was in languages anyway, so less politics in that. Um, so, so the thing was, I, I also uh, later on obtained a freedom, under the Freedom of Information Act some of Bath Spa's emails about me and discovered that even before that decision, there were worried emails being sent between academics who I'd never heard of saying, can't you get him to do something else? So they, they were on hot coals about it quite early on. And uh, ironically, their refusal to let me do it and their subsequent refusal to return my fees, which I asked for four years ago, would you give me my fees back? If they'd given me my fees back, I'd have just gone somewhere else and written it off. But because they refused it and they dug their heels in and then their lawyers told them to fight me, um, that has resulted in what has become a long four year publicity of this situation, the fact of my research, and what's been going on. So it's actually had completely the opposite effect to what they would have wanted. Ironically, it's drawn more public attention to my research. If I'd done the research and gone to Belgrade uh, to that conference that Georgievich was running, 
very few people would have ever heard about my research. It would have just been presented to a small number of professional people at a small conference. But now the world's heard about it. You've galvanized a lot of other academics around this issue. Your case has, certainly. But this is a case That's right, about because free it's speech within academia. Yet we're seeing the yes, same kind of punishment you've received, James, differently meted out, but still punishment being meted out to academics. Uh, take the case. Oh my gosh, where to start? How many academics have been getting hate mail? I mean, it can be Kathleen Stock. Um, it can be anyone, male or female today, who has the temerity to say that changing sex is impossible. Now, that seems to be a very basic, uh, a basic paradigm that could or could not be argued, depending if you're going to address this from the point of human rights law or you know, physiology. But the problem seems to be, as you found out, that the argument isn't even allowed to take place. And shouldn't academia be the place where this argument is taking place, first and foremost? Well, absolutely. Um, a friend of mine uh, went to a university in the south of England. She's a senior academic. And she took part in a debate with another academic at that university on um, the topics irrelevant because they were basically coming from very different positions. And it was a debate between the two of them. It was on, on in a lecture theater in front of a large crowd of students from that university. Those students, those young people told my friends that they were very surprised to see two people who had a different point of view discussing it in a civilized manner because they had not witnessed that. That I find profoundly shocking and worrying. Well, There's a culture now of intolerance, of um, vilifying somebody who has a different point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, journalists, there, there was a, a senior journalist on a BBC radio programme several weeks ago saying, um, in journalism, the idea that you should report um, both sides of an argument is disappearing. Young journalist students don't really think that. They're not learning that. Um, you know, we, we've had um, so many post-war decades of uh, liberal democracy. Uh, I think perhaps we've taken it for granted. My generation grew up with um, constant expansion of freedoms and growth and, and thinking and so on. And we seem to have gone into a kind of reverse, um, whether it's a temporary reverse which of course, if you think back to, you know, the years from 1931 to 1945 in, in Germany and Europe, um, absolutely horrendous reverse, um, temporary, that's not an awfully long time. That's less than 15 years, although it would have been building up for years, some years before that. Um, so I, I wonder where it's going. Um, what I'm really pleased to see is that more and more people are talking about it openly as a problem as you are. Um, I think that I knew this very early on. It really is in court that a lot of these things will be not just decided but influenced because you can have all the people on social media you like voicing points of view. You can have articles in broadsheet newspapers saying, look at this, this is really worrying, you know, 
no platforming, suppression of freedom of speech. You've got a proliferation now of online forums and new magazines um, give, giving voices to people who would have written in The Guardian once and now can't because they're considered to be persona non grata because they don't have the right uh, beliefs about gender and things like that. Um, however, none of that is of any real weight in the arena of public policy and law because it's because of the law and its movement into public policy that we've arrived at the position we're in. Can I explain that to you? Sure. So very well-meaning laws like the 2010 Equality Act said that there were protected minorities of people about whom public bodies and other organizations had to edu educate their uh, people about. They had to educate their staff and so on and so forth. You know, this is people like the police, social services in England, the universities, education authorities, um, the NHS, you know, any public body um, under the Equality Act is required to educate. So then, of course, they had to employ a swathe of, of diversity officers in order to arrange this education to comply with that law. Those diversity officers, um, one of the protected minorities were people who were undergoing gender transition or had done. And so those diversity officers, in fact, some of them contacted me because I used to do transgender awareness training. Uh, and I think only probably a handful of people in the whole country did that training because it's such a tiny area and subject that nobody knew anything about it. And everyone who did say they knew something about it was actually a kind of self-appointed so-called expert. I mean, the case of the activist groups who carried out trainings for these public bodies, they tended to be relatives of people who transitioned or they were people who transitioned themselves or, um, or partners of, or they, had, or they were parents of, you know, they had a personal interest in it, but they were lay people who had kind of appointed themselves as experts. And what we kind of, think of now as the transgender narrative um, was something that had been being formed by those activist groups that had been put pressurizing for the Equality Act and before that for the Gender Recognition Act 2004 in the UK um, had been building up a body of work which said that effectively you could be born in the wrong body so there's one organization that went for that and taught the NHS that um, you could have a male brain in a female body or a female brain in a male body and so therefore these people had to be helped it wasn't their fault it wasn't a lifestyle choice um, so it was trying to um, create a scientific objective basis for treatment and wanted to teach people that you know because the base the, the fact is that people who transitioned had faced horrendous discrimination horrendous um, they pretty well wouldn't be able to get a job again uh, remembering most of the people were males to females, often in later life, who would find it hard to pass as women. Their voice would have broken. They'd have, uh, you know, bigger bone structure and so on. They might have lost their hair. So, um, so there was, you know, so, so you've got to look at the history of it, where people had um, had terrible experiences if they transitioned for whatever reason that they transitioned. That's irrelevant, really. The fact is, they had a really bad time. Right. Um, and so these groups wanted to stop that. And the charity I was a trustee of wanted to um, educate people so that that wouldn't happen anymore. You know, in other, you know, there's somebody's transition. They're a human being just like you. 
And so they should be accorded the dignity and the rights as such. Quite right. That's why these Acts of Parliament came in. However, what then happened was that this narrative, which by then had been joined by what we can now see as coming out of critical theory and queer theory, the idea that sex and gender has nothing to do with the body mm-hmm. and, and, and that you could virtually just be any one of a number of genders and you could choose it. And it became a kind of iconoclastic, subversive political act. And, um, and uh, one leader of one of these activist groups um, I've seen on a, a podcast saying, you know, we are leading a revolution. So that's very different starts from the first one I described where they just wanted, they wanted to show that it was a medical, scientific brain, neurobiological thing to one that wants to basically break down society. I mean, I think, you know, uh, looking at that as, as well, wants to break down gender stereotypes, but in a way that we've seen to be very problematic now. So, so, the, so the thing is, it's beca- then, the narrative then became that gender's just all in your head. And then, that, then the, the idea of self-ID came in, because why should you have to have medical treatment when it's just all in your head? You can just say you are this. And they wanted, you know, activists wanted to get self-ID in to the Gender Recognition Act, which at the moment it's not happening because our government said no. Um, but I guess they're going to stop that pressure. You know, it's going to go on, pressurising for that. So, so the thing is, so I'm, I'm basically giving you a slightly complex background, but it is a complex area. And I think one has to understand these things to get it. That narrative became part of public policy because those public bodies then got those activist groups to tell them what to write in their diversity policy guidelines. So you got things saying what, what I've just described, that, you know, gender's just in the mind and that you can be any gender. And words like cis were invented, which is a word taken from science to mean something same. Another example of how language was manipulated and changed in these policies that were effectively written by activist groups for public bodies, like the police and education and health and so on, uh, were using, as well as words like cis, I think you heard that part, didn't you, about cis, um, words like um, assigned, assigned female at birth, assigned male at birth, that only happens when someone's intersex and the doctors intervened to, re- to, to, you know, to medically assign a sex because an intersex person um, has complex biology that isn't one sex or the other. Um, so no one's assigned a sex at birth. You are either born male, female or intersex. There's only those three possibilities. There's no other. But, but language like that has been used to um, create the idea that it's kind of all just what you think it is and what you feel it is. And if someone assigns something to you, they could get it wrong, which they couldn't because you're either male, female or intersex. Now, before um, this rise in political activism that we've seen in the last so many years, um, and, and by the way, even now, I talk to a lot of people who've transitioned. I've got friends who've transitioned. I've actually known people who've transitioned since 1976. Um, so it's about 44 years. Um, none of them uh, would endorse this kind of extreme identity politics, um, critical theory, queer theory view of people and the world. They actually would all be as concerned as I am about what's happening uh, with 
people being drawn into getting serious medical treatment and then regretting it. Um, and, and that's just putting it very basically. So, I mean, what, what I'm, I'm saying is that I think this, this view has become very powerful because it's been written into law and policy. So it's rather a long way of explaining that to you, but I think it's important to understand that. No, it absolutely is, because I've spoken to so many women who are appalled that this legislation you referred to earlier, but it's the Gender Recognition Act, went into vigor without any consultation of the people who would be most affected by it. And there was little to no thinking about the fallout from such legislation, such as the rights of women and children that are put at the crosshairs of some of the social acts that happen when you assign a male person a female status, granting them rights to, as you know, women's, you know, wards in hospitals, prisons, psychiatric institutions, battered, you know, rape shelters, et cetera, et cetera. And then the crazier nonsense that happens when we're seeing cancer research, say, you know, people with cervixes, uh, recently, I learned from someone on social media that she made a complaint at her place of work because the equalities person in her company said that not only women can experience menopause, and there are things that many women, myself included, find a bit dehumanizing about a language that refers to us as menstruators. Meanwhile, the same Orthodoxy from Stonewall, for instance, is not being meted out to men. So I've created my own language for men, such as front noodlers, because I do take issue with the fact that we are reduced to our body parts, men are not. So of course, when the feminists say this is about misogyny, you, you can't help but agree with them because I do not know what could be possibly more misogynist than reducing women to people who give birth, you know, chest feeding, uh, it, it's just gone over the pale. And for me, as a, as a woman, but also as a human, even if I were a man, I would look at this and think, what on earth? They're not doing this to us. So heck yeah, there's something wrong here. I agree with you, yes. At the same time, James, there are people who are genuinely gender dysphoric as you point out, do not agree with what's happening today. And they in fact worry about their human rights and they worry about an eventual backlash directed at them, not only at the Wokarati, what will happen to them? That's right. I, I've got a friend, an elderly friend who transitioned from male to female about 50 years ago. And she told me she's she feels very uncomfortable about what you've called the Wokarati, you know, the, the Stonewall um, Brigade, because she feels exposed. She, she, she didn't do anything that she did for any political reasons. It was her own personal reasons. Um, and she feels somehow that um, she feels unsafe, actually. And I think there are probably a lot of people like that. And another person that uh, is quite senior in uh, a charity advocates for transgender people told me she was afraid that um, they would lose all of the rights that they'd managed to gain. You're listening to Savage Minds. We hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We depend on listeners and readers just like you.
Now, back to our show. There are people saying we need to roll back the GRA. And I, I understand the anger. I truly do. I, you know, I think when we first spoke years ago, I told you I had even taught queer theory. Um, I do worry that academia has driven this incredibly politicized machinery recklessly without thinking about the human rights of women. And I saw this in the 90s as women's studies department in the US, these departments were being erased, being replaced with gender studies, being replaced with cultural studies, which was often a mishmash of gender studies and film studies. And women, anyone who spoke about even you know, radical feminism, much less Simone de Beauvoir was rather ridiculed. It was like, uh, them, you know, forget about them. They're just, you know, old hags who wear bad clothes or whatever. I mean, there were jokes to this nature made within academic walls. And I do wonder to what degree that gender dysphoria of the truly gender dysphoric, rather not this cultural wave of, of well, it's, a, it's not gender dysphoria in many cases that we're seeing today. There's a, uh, another thing happening which might be more related to Lisa Littman's rapid onset gender dysphoria, but not uh, as per children, but maybe there's something going on in terms of a social contagion. But why do you think that the laws that were made to protect people who are genuinely gender dysphoric needed to protect them beyond the right to, you know, obviously like every one of us deserves shelter, jobs, lack of discrimination. Why was it necessary to legalize the change of sex on documents, for instance, because that's part of the slippery slope. Of right. Very, 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 very obvious answer. Um, okay. So in the UK, anybody could change their passport without um, having had, uh, I, well, actually you did need a letter from a doctor. So you could change your passport very easily. So you could travel, but you couldn't change your birth certificate. This is what the GRA was about. It was about the birth certificate. Now, the reason for that was that if your birth certificate says you're male, and you're actually, to all intents and purposes, living your whole life as female, your passport says female, you've had all the surgery, you can't marry your part, your male partner. Now remember, this is all before gay marriage and all of that, which has completely wiped out the necessity for it, really. Um, although some people would take issue with what I've just said. But, but, but if I use an example, um, Stephen Whittle is a long-term trans activist, uh, trans man, who transitioned in the 1970s, and when that was extremely unusual for anyone to transition from female to male, and it was also unusual for anyone to transition from male to female back in the 70s. It was such a tiny number of people. And he was in a relationship, um, and he still is, they've been together more than 40 years, they've got four, three or four children. Um, his partner had the children with Stephen there as their father, um, a good solid family, but he wasn't allowed to marry his partner and he wasn't allowed to adopt his children. So he knew that if his wife or his partner, because he, he couldn't marry her, if she died, 
then his children would be taken away from him and put into care. And to him, this was absolutely unacceptable. And of course it was, it's unacceptable to any reasonable person. How appalling. So he decided that there needed to be a law that would let him and other people have transitioned, of course, change their birth certificates so that they could go to a registry office and apply to marry their partner. So he could marry Sarah. And he formed, to do that, he trained as a lawyer. And then he set up an organization called Press for Change, which became a really successful long-term legal campaign, which culminated in getting the Gender Recognition Act in 2004. And everybody was very pleased about it. Finally, Stephen could marry Sarah. He could become the legal father of his children. Absolutely quite right. If anything happened to Sarah, those children would remain with Stephen. So that's why the Gender Recognition Act, that's why change the birth certificate. Now, interestingly, since then, I found out only a couple of years ago, you can get married in the UK by showing your passport at a registry office. You don't have to show your birth certificate anymore, which actually means you don't need a birth certificate at all, because I think every employer now accepts a passport. You see, in the old days, if you went for a job at the NHS, they'd say, can you bring your birth certificate in on your first day, please? So again, if you transitioned and you had to take in your birth certificate, they're going to say, what's that? Your birth certificate says your, your um, mail on it or, or whatever. You know, what a problem that's going to cause. They could end up losing the job before they even start it. So this is very good reasons why we have the Gender Recognition Act, quite rightly so. At that time, one or two lone voices predicted what then eventually happened, as you know, which was that, that, that actually women's rights as female bodied people would be eroded. But everybody else said, no, that won't happen. This is just a tiny minority of people. They need to be protected. Of course, that's not going to happen. People like Sheila Jeffries are way out on the fringe, you know, but actually those lone voices were right. Yes, uh, it's shocking, isn't it? Because back in the days of, let's say, what happened in California with Olivia Records and the presence of Sandy Stone, there was pushback at the very beginning, not by any alleged transphobia, but by women who said, wait a second, we're a group of sound engineers. We have created something for us and there's got to be a guy coming in because that's exactly what they saw. They just said... This is, you know, for us now. We, there are so few sound engineers in the entirety of the United States, and then we can't even have that. And there's that expression that I see all over the internet in recent years. This is, you know, why we can't have nice things, feminists will say, in reference to some pimple of a cultural moment. And I, I, I reckon that there's this feeling that women have worked so hard over the past centuries to have rights from voting to land ownership, to being able to leave their house and rent a flat without their father's or husband's signature permission. And, then, and now we're being called cervix havers. Can I come in on that, Julian? Sure, Some, sure. Yeah, I want to, I want to come in on that um, because in answer to something you said some time ago in our conversation, um, is it possible 
that what is underlying at least some of this, some of the time, is a deep-seated collective problem with the feminine. That, uh, and I mean, I, I, I'm a Jungian uh, psychotherapist. I, you know, I find Jung's ideas very helpful. And there's something I'm going to tell you about that he said that applies to this in a minute. But, but um, as 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 a as a as a as a race, as a human race, we have a lot of problems with the feminine. Whether the feminine manifests in in males who are more feminine, whether it's with female-bodied people, with women. Um, we have a big problem with it. And it's something that isn't discussed on a very deep level other than kind of sociologically. I'm talking about much deeper than sociologically. I'm talking about collectively unconsciously. And so, and of course, you know, I think many women who fought for women's rights do recognize that as well. And they perhaps phrase it in a slightly different way to me. Um, but my feeling is that that is going on here. And I'd like to tell you about something Jung wrote in a small book he wrote in the 1950s called The Undiscovered Self. Because of course, Jung did talk a lot about the animus, the anima, the anima being the feminine component in a male, the animus being the more masculine component in a female and so on, looking at it very deeply psychologically. But he also wrote a lot about collectives because he came up with the idea of the collective unconscious, but as well as a personal unconscious, that is, a repository of all of our memories, thoughts, feelings, complexes and histories that reside in us, but we don't re actively remember. It's unconscious, but there is also a human collective unconscious which goes back through all time in which exists uh, powerful archetypes recognizable to all peoples at all times. And in The Undiscovered Self, he talks about the plight of the individual in modern society and the rule of reason versus collective chaos. He said that in times of distress, people turn to visions of utopias or apocalyptic disasters. And, and this was the thing. He said, only the critical reason of a mentally stable stratum of the population stops the subversive ideas of a minority from causing chaos. He said the mass crushes out the insight and reflection that are possible within the individual, which can lead to a doctrinaire and authoritarian tyranny should the state succumb to a fit of weakness. Rational argument is only possible if the emotionality of a situation does not exceed a critical degree. If that happens, reason is supplanted by slogans and fantasies. And a sort of collective possession develops, which rapidly develops into a psychic epidemic. All of that applies to what's happening now. We wrote it 70 years ago. I think this is what's happening. I'll give you my take on this. I'll raise you. <laughs> I'll raise your, your young with uh, Eric Garret. Because I think Louis well, I, 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 I'm, no, I'm not interested in an ideological argument, but I, I think... Jung's, Jung's ideas can sit alongside everybody else's. Well, I think it can, but I think the one thing that women are pushing back on here is a very long-standing tradition within psychoanalysis, even within therapy, of a kind of male-centered voice 
uh, where the influence of psychoanalytic theory and philosophy has been about women being rendered subjects through the male gaze. For instance, Luce Irigaré, a very um, well-published uh, French psychoanalyst, took this issue up. She criticized Lacan and Freud's phallologiocentrism and phallocentrism. And then she went on to say that basically sexual difference does not exist. She maintained that true sexual difference requires that both men and women are equally able to achieve subjectivity, not that what we have today where men are subjects as self-conscious entities and women are always the other. The women are the ones being sculpted. Women are the ones mm. in films being brought flowers to and being told they're beautiful and, and they're expected to smile, you know, that, that typical, uh, trope culturally mm -hmm. is real. Oh, smile, I'm told. I mean, you know, I'm, I was in my 30s buying something at a grocery store in Manhattan and I was told to smile uh, as if I'm not allowed to have a thought in my head at seven in the morning that might not be smiley. And I think that women are made into this kind of inessential, inert matter symbolically within our cultures, such that, yes, I do take issue by the to the fact that men who say they feel feminine, they feel like a woman, I'm putting that in quotes. When I ask to explain this, that comes down to their subjectivity, fair enough, but that does not a woman make. I mean, I'll tell you, theoretically speaking, I, I do not understand what this whole idea of feeling like a woman or feeling like a man means in the early 21st century when I thought the last century was about sort of conquering equal rights, having equity, such that girls and boys, if we're taught math, we can achieve math. Now, there might be some mechanisms that pose a barrier to our being astrophysicists or, you know, manning a spacecraft or womaning a spacecraft to the moon. But I think that the language where women is designated as other, both epistemologically, ontologically, has relegated our place within this cultural imagination of generations of men since the mid 20th century who say, I feel like a woman. Because James, even today, the men who self-identify as transgender, as women, are not able to evoke their womanness outside of the very tropes that feminists and women, I mean, women who don't consider themselves feminists, have been pushing back upon. I mean, what does Jung have to say to that? Well, you're, you're on a different trajectory there because, um, well, Jung split off from Freud very early on over that business. Um, so, you know, Jung's work is, uh, is kind of almost mystical. It's very deep-seated. It's about the collective. I think everything he said absolutely stands. You're talking about something... Um, that's happening on, on a, a more obvious, even more conscious level in a way. So you're talking about language, use of language. Um, also, you made me think about, and again, it, it, it's, it's, it's a complex topic, but um, men who say they feel like women, that if somebody came to, to me in a clinic and said, well, I feel like a woman, then I know that that person, Okay, do you remember I said the doctor said there were lots of different reasons people came to, a, to ask for treatment? Well, there are theories about etiology of transsexualism, 
There's one called autogynophilia. Um, there's early onset homosexual type of people. These were Michael Bailey, the psychologist Michael Bailey's typologies and other people worked on that. Um, that, that that's probably considered transphobic now to talk about that. Autogynophilia is where there's a kind of a, uh, an erotic component to the idea of oneself in a feminine body. Um, Cross-dressing can have quite an erotic component. Then there are people who, you know, say boys who were so feminine from the year dot that their lives were just impossible because they were so feminine. Um, I've certainly met a minority of people like that in my work um, where everything about them, um, in, in fact, they would probably find it hard to be able to use a male toilet. They'd be told to go elsewhere. They're so feminine. They're not trying to be anything. They just, the way they are is just really feminine. So, um, and then there might be other, other types of people. So the, the point I want to make, um, okay, let me try and, because I'm not an academic and I don't think in the terms that you do about that kind of intellectual academic theory. Um, so I work more on sensing and holding a space in the, you know, trying to connect more with unconscious contents. So, um, right, let me sort of pin it down. Um, all of those things about the language people use, oh, I feel like a woman, which means they don't think they are a woman, doesn't it? Because otherwise you wouldn't feel like a woman if you were a woman. So I'm really looking at the language now. So that suggests to me a certain approach to what they think of as woman and femininity in themselves. Um, I, I, I think... Uh, the lang I think people pick up language, so that feel like a woman's probably a phrase a lot of people have picked up. Just as gender dysphoria is a phrase a lot of people have picked up. Oh, my gender dysphoria, I'm gender dysphoria. You know, people didn't used to say that, but they've picked it up from the, from the uh, material. And, and I think that, um, I think that some people are very, very identified with the opposite sex. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry, there are some people who could not identify with the same sex parent. And so they identified more with the opposite sex parent and that would have probably been very unconscious. And that's, uh, th that would mean that person then would feel more comfortable around that opposite sex parent and, and that culture and that group. So though, you know, you've got those people. So there are all kinds of different people. So that language, is, it's just use of language. For me, you know, I'd want to, I, I would want to say, well, what do you mean by that? What does that actually mean? In fact, I would say that to my patients. What do you mean by that? I would say to people, what do you mean by non-binary? No one could explain it to me. And I would say, it sounds as if what you mean is that you don't relate to either the sort of gender role of a male or the gender role of a female. And they'd say, yes, that's right. But James, that's exactly what women are pushing back against because our entire lives have been framed by mm. this is what you should and must do. This is what you shouldn't and must not do because we are framed. Mm. I would argue boys mm. are too, by the way, and men are as well. But to a greater degree, we get this pressure to behave, to follow, to be kind. Even the pushback to us saying, mm. but men can't be women, mm. turf, hater, trying to kill me. And I think what we are seeing evidence within Western Anglophone culture, because this is something 
almost uniquely endemic to Anglophone countries, with the exception of what happened yesterday in France with Macron. It's happening in it's happening in India. It's happening everywhere else as well. It it is not just in the. Well, uh, it the is West. different in India in the sense that the Hijra they've it's a very long existence of mostly Hijra are gay men who are shunned by their families. It, it's easy to interpret it as the same, but I think when, when I spoke to Ray Blanchard, in fact, he was telling me about the two different types of ideologies of gender dysphoria from the gay male or the um, autogonophiliac male. And what we are noting today is that there's far less of the gay male type of gender dysphoric individual because homosexuality has been far more accepted. So we're seeing- Yeah, so actually what's happening in India now is lots more young girls wanting to transition to male. Yes, well that also, but again, this goes back to what some of the feminists indicated a few years ago saying, you know, but the reasons for transitioning for a man or a woman to declare themselves a trans woman or a trans man respectively are quite different social mechanisms. And the feminists maintain that women are transitioning and young girls are transitioning because of cultural and social misogyny. Well, that's what the detransitioners were telling me. Yes. And a lot of the detransitioners and more and more of the transitioners the last four or five years are female in countries yes. like the U UK, uh, Canada. And so what when you see someone and they say they feel like the opposite sex, this is my question is, why haven't we, and I know you're saying you're not in academia, but this is a pragmatic issue, I think, on a therapeutic level. Why have we not developed a therapeutic language for saying, I'm a feminine man instead of I'm a woman? You do understand that, you know, it's really, maybe it's easy for me to posit this, but I think that what people like Eri Gare and other feminist psychoanalysts analysts are saying over the years is that we have not carved out a language for saying that gender is a performative that anyone can access. Because when I hear a man say he feels like a woman, can't you relate? Of course I can't, because my entire life I've shunned one category because mm -hmm. for survivability, mm -hmm. no one you mm -hmm. know, cares that you are pretty or wear a dress, really. I mean, yes, for a job interview, but to make it, as they say in this world, women have to beef up on the textbooks. We've got to get out there and be a little more aggressive on the job market. Mm -hmm. uh, flowery dress, mm -hmm. Laura Ashley or Ugg boots, you know? And I think that what a lot of the people pushing back on this again, not only feminist, is this idea that there's a master signifier, a symbolic signifier, where on the one hand, femininity is undervalued, except in terms of domestic chores and reproduction. And on the other, we get it in drag shows, and now it's being put towards as front and center as the most important thing. Meanwhile, in the UK, especially since the pandemic, how many women are not getting the kind of social assistance they need, feminine or not, you see? And the, the governments, uh, not just in the UK, but in Canada and other countries are putting for, advancing this idea that 
Well, look what happened in the US last week. Now for the first time, the military has rubber stamped women being able to wear their hair up in certain ways that were previously not allowed and makeup. And this I found deeply offensive because when I was in the US military, we were not only not allowed to do it, but there were real practical reasons for that down to you're in the jungle, you don't want your red lipstick attracting mosquitoes because makeup does that. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, now yeah. women are feeling the slap of patriarchy once again being told, wait a sec, suddenly you can be feminine and that's okay. And it's like, wait a sec, makeup and, and dresses is not really what femininity is about. It's, a, it's an artifice of femininity. And I don't think we've really separated femininity as an ideal from the artifice that marks it. And so women are feeling the pushback from men who now, gender dysphoric or not, we're seeing it all over social media, are saying, well, I'm gonna come into your spaces if you don't sleep with me, then you're a transphobic lesbian, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's really hard, obviously on social media, no one can see who really is or is not trans, trans uh, I'm sorry, dysphoric, but I think it comes down to this idealization of the idealized feminine and feminized body. Wait a sec, most women, don't even have time to put up makeup. Uh, they don't have time to get dressed in these outfits that we see trans-identified males wearing. And it becomes sort of a mockery to what we are supposed to be doing, you know? And I think that's where the social pushback is. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because again, um, before things became the way they are in terms of the, uh, you know, the sort of aggressive um, attacks on social media and, and the, you know, what's come to be called present day trans activism, which is different to what I would have seen that as years ago. Um, I remember having lots of conversations with people at the clinic who were transitioning, who would talk about what toilets to use. And I, I'd say, well, you know, if you, if you can't go in the ladies because you don't pass, then you, you're gonna have to go in the disabled. Now that would be considered a transphobic comment now. Um, because I think what's happened, it's a demand on the part of some of those people, you've got to accept me no matter what. It's an aggressive, angry demand. Um, and the people who were fortunate enough to be able to pass didn't, they, they don't take part in that because they just quietly live their lives and they're, they're, no one notices them. Um, so, 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 you know, what's happened is that sort of very um, loud, kind of aggressive demands have taken the place of what was really a quieter demand for just ordinary civil rights for people. I think that the recent trend has called into question by many the original GRA in the UK's case and what this means to rubber stamp history being rewritten. I mean, there's an ethical issue there as well. No offense to people who are generally, uh, genuinely dysphoric, but I do wonder if this is correct that we are undoing public records in such a way that obviously there's you know a mess now in the prison system for women and but mm. for the historical record, when we start changing the sex of people's birth certificates, we're sort of 
playing with fire, um, does it really help people given, like you mentioned that now one can get married with just a passport or that now same-sex couples can get married, so why not? I mean, the meta-narrative around gender dysphoria is that people, I'm sure you've seen this, will kill themselves if they are not recognized in law. People will feel suicidal if they don't get what they want. That's one reading. The other reading I'm also seeing is that people are saying, well, this is an incredibly narcissistic insistence. And why are we caving in to people who are basically having tantrums on social media, claiming all these things when shouldn't therapeutic, psychiatric, psychological help be about treating conditions and not pushing a love society mm. to meet mm. that person's fantasy of themselves. And mm. that's an ethical situation that I have often asked myself, mm. comparing this to if I'm a kleptomaniac, do I have the right to ask my psychiatrist to get me a visa gold on the NHS? you know, so mm. that I'm not really stealing anymore, but we'll just help you out. So, you know, mm -hmm. what about treating the actual underlying issues? Well, yeah, and it would, again, it would depend what those were, because as I said, there are lots of reasons why people might want treatment. But if you go back historically, um, there were studies, I think it's going back to the 60s, which showed that therapy didn't really have any impact on people that really, really, really wanted to transition. And so the psychiatrists, and there were very few in number in the field, came to the conclusion that there needed to be, for this tiny number of people, there needed to be the facility to transition medically. Um, and that no amount of psychoanalysis or psychotherapy would change their minds. And that was the thinking. And then that eventually sort of came into um, the idea that, well, if you want to transition, you should have the right to. It kind of changed. And we're with that now. If you want to do it, then why should anyone try and stop you and then in, i mean informed consent is that um most clinics were operating under informed consent which is different from affirmation by the way completely informed consent is um we inform you you consent we say do you realize what you're getting yourself into you want to do this we check out you're okay you haven't got an active mental health condition you're stable you know what you're doing do you realize these could be the consequences? These could be the side effects. Do you still want to do this? And you'll say, yes, I do. Okay, we've informed you, you consent, sign here. That's informed consent. The idea that a, a stable adult can take responsibility for that decision. This raises greater questions then about how medical practices and even psychiatric or therapeutic practices might be feeding into something that is is cultural um for instance you know going back to the rachel dolezal issue that raised great anger by people even not just african-americans people across the liberal left were infuriated that a white woman did, would declare herself black well isn't everything cultural yeah isn't, isn't everything cultural really well, I mean, I'd say um, everything is, yes, I'd say most everything is cultural, even, you know, our individual psychologies are formed by that. But I, I have to wonder why when, you know, let's say plastic surgeons, there have been cases of surgeons who've said no, because they keep getting the same patient coming back over and over and over, and they see this as destructive and that this patient is actually indulging in a kind of mania through surgery. And they've mm -hmm. said no to mm -hmm. that. But I have to wonder then why, given that there's this 
and when I use the word fetish, I'm talking in an anthropological way, but there's a, a fetish, a cultural fetish of what being woman means. And it's exchangeable. We see it on cinema. We see it in Pretty Woman, where someone like Julia Roberts mm. is a prostitute and then marries a millionaire. I mean, this is something that's completely out of the realm of reality. That's not what most prostitutes yeah. look like. That's not the kinds of homes they inhabit. And no, they're not meeting millionaires who want to marry them. But we mm, have that mm. cultural trope circulating. And I do wonder, again, speaking of the rights of women to not be degraded through what has become an operation within the NHS, within mm -hmm. institutional practices, within therapy, psychiatry, psychology. Mm -hmm. And to what degree, even if you, know, you can say this person mm -hmm. is a functioning and aware person that I can approve for gender reassignment surgery, now called gender confirmation surgery, and the names keep changing, um, to what degree might, are we doing harm to 51% of the population? I don't mean like if this person over there gets you know, gender confirmation, confirmation surgery, obviously I'm not directly affected. What we are seeing though in the last decade is that there's a rise in these cases and I'm not just speaking about children but we cannot exclude the children caught up in this. The media's jumped on board because the media, we're in a, we're in a capitalistic society, clickbait, more and more stories abound this past year about people who are transgender than the travesties in Syria. And all of a sudden we wonder why women are angry when there's been an enormous cultural advertising media focus on this very tiny demographic that's so tiny. I bet if you had a poodle convention, there'd be a larger demographic of poodle owners, you know? And on a much deeper level, it's part of a collective complex about gender that's coming out, I think. But on another level, it's because of the law. Because if it wasn't enshrined in law that you have to educate about certain minority groups, and that's become a particular narrative, then it would all just be a discussion. It's got the impact it's got because of the law. And, and also, just actually one other thing I want to say is that um, there's very little research into the entire area which brings me back to our original topic, which is my research, which was stopped. There needs to be an awful lot of research over a long period into all of this, and it needs to be something that's properly discussed. Oh, 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 oh,